the devil, the Bible, and healthy fundamentalism. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Really amazing things this week on Ask Science Mike because I didn't even pick the questions. I started a fundraising campaign on Patreon and now people are involved and my patrons picked the questions for this week's episode. It's 100% your show. If you want to get involved, head to AskScienceMike.com for more information. But for now, let's get it started. Hey, Mike. Really enjoying the show. Just had a question for you about fundamentalism. Um, I had heard you say something on another podcast about healthy fundamentalism. And I was just uh, curious if you could explain your understanding of healthy fundamentalism versus unhealthy fundamentalism. Thanks so much. Man, our culture is really quickly becoming (laughs) anti-fundamentalist. I don't know if anyone's noticed, but... uh... You know, that's probably rooted in some justified ideas. I think when a lot of people think of fundamentalism, they think of September 11th, 2001, Islamic fundamentalism, American fundamentalism. They think of people bombing abortion clinics. They think the oppression of rights of minorities and women. But I don't think that tells the whole story. There are dangerous fundamentalists, but as you heard on another podcast Not all fundamentalists are unhealthy or dangerous, not by any stretch of the imagination. And before I even talk about that, I want to note that we all, and I mean all of us, have a bias towards seeing our own beliefs as true. This is documented. It's been validated in research and in studies. We naturally reject information that does not conform to our views or to the labels we hold for ourselves. Something as simple as calling yourself a Democrat or a Republican or a Christian or an atheist means that you will automatically and naturally filter out information that doesn't conform to those identities. And this has been, again, broadly documented. So let's not vilify the fundamentalists for (laughs) a bias towards uh, pre-existing beliefs. We all have that. But if we're going to talk about healthy and unhealthy fundamentalism, we should probably first talk about what fundamentalism is at all, right? And it's kind of hard to nail down. Everybody has different definitions. And uh, one of the most frustrating things about having conversations about faith and philosophy and epistemology is everyone wants to fight about the terms. So I'm going to start with a working definition for fundamentalism. And I'm going to say that's a strict interpretation of and adherence to a sacred text. And this is usually done in opposition to perceived moral erosion in contemporary society. Fundamentalists want to revert to an older way of understanding the world that's revealed in a sacred text that they believe to be perfect. Now, to modern ears, that sounds pretty bad, right? And I guess it could be. Let's talk about belief in God for a second. There's really only two ways to understand God neurologically in terms of how your brain is affected. Uh, The original understanding of God was to understand uh, God who was angry or wrathful primarily. 
this is a God who would say flood the earth uh, because people are wicked. Uh, or this would be a God who created the universe by splitting the belly of another God, if we go to some Babylonian ideas. Um, but old gods, the original gods, were angry. And, and the angry model of God persists to this day. And when you believe that God is primarily angry, it affects your brain when you focus on that idea. Your amygdala is more likely to respond to stimulus. It's, you get angry. You get fearful of outsiders, for example. Uh, as a result, you uh, can have higher anxiety. You can have more difficulty forgiving yourself and forgiving other people. And all that sounds pretty bad, right? And then on the other hand, you can believe God is primarily loving. And when you contemplate on and believe in a loving God, your brain changes. Your anterior cingulate cortex, the part of your brain responsible for compassion and empathy develops. Your uh, neocortex, your focus and concentration improve. Your blood pressure goes down. It uh, becomes easy to forgive others. You become accepting of outsiders. And whenever I give those definitions of God, uh, I always have people pat themselves on the back uh, because they believe that they're loving God people and the other people of their faith or other faiths are the angry God people. So fundamentalists would be the angry God crowd, right? Well, not so fast. <laughs> Fundamentalism has perks as a belief system. First of all, it offers you a certain and clear worldview. It's unambiguous. Uh, it's black and white. And that actually... The brain likes it. It's easier to make ethical considerations on a black and white matrix. It's easier to feel like you are on the right side, that you have things figured out. And your brain likes that. You have a bias towards certainty. Fundamentalism also has tremendous social support. People who are involved in fundamentalist religious sects enjoy, that's S-E-C-T-S, not S-E-X, by the way, for the junior high schoolers who might be listening, social uh, fundamentalist religious sects. Uh, they uh, enjoy tremendous support from their peer group. They also, because of that, probably have lower anxiety and lower depression than the baseline for their population group and in their culture. This is across cultures, by the way. That's pretty good things. But let me quote my favorite book about God. And some people might say, oh, you mean the Bible? It's actually How God Changes Your Brain by Andrew Newberg. And uh, this, is a, this is a quote. There's a million quotes in there that just make me want to jump up and dance, but this is one of them. As we see it, the neurological problem of fundamentalism does not lie in the firm adherence to a specific set of beliefs. Rather, the problem arises when individuals use their religion to justify angry feelings toward others. So hearing that quote, and they have, boy, done a lot of research to justify it. They're neurologists. They, they study the brain. They're brain researchers. It's the angry God fundamentalism that is unhealthy because religion is used to justify being angry with people, right? Those people that don't hold the code, those people that fall out of line, those people who aren't faithful, they respond in anger, and it feels kind of good to get angry in righteous anger. The preacher pounds the pulpit every Sunday and he yells and screams and we talk about the danger that we're faced with society and it's fear, 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 anger, anger, anger. And that is really unhealthy for an individual. But it's not even the most unhealthy form of fundamentalism. <laughs> Angry God fundamentalism is not the bottle of the barrel. 
the most toxic form of religion, or frankly, any ideology, is an authoritarian system that includes a need to impose this system on as many people as possible. So an angry fundamentalist sect who believed it was important to turn everyone else into angry fundamentalists, you have now reached the pinnacle of religious unhealth. This is the kind of communities that ultimately begin to foster religious violence. About 1% of religious people in the West, when surveyed, report that they would be willing to engage in acts of violence to further the cause of their faith. Maximum unhealth. So what's health? Healthy fundamentalists may have a strict interpretation of Scripture, but they believe in a God who's primarily loving. And because of that, they respond to outgroups, people that aren't in their faith, with compassion and love and not fear or anger. And actually, for a second, I want you to picture your average Southern Baptist. You know, this is a group that these days uh, is villainized a lot in the media, but most Baptists are good, sweet people trying to make the world better. They donate their time, they donate their money, and uh, they try to make the world a better place. And although they may believe people who don't have a certain understanding of salvation are going to hell, that doesn't make them angry with them. Their hearts are broken and they view them with compassion. That's healthy fundamentalism. I know that sounds pretty nutty to the secularist ear or even to like a progressive person of faith, but in terms of their impact on society and indeed on their own brains, their impact really is more good than harm. If you'd like to read more about this specifically, check out the chapter Fundamentalism and Anger in the book How God Changes Your Brain. I'll have a link to that on this week's show notes on AskScienceMike.com. Our next question comes from Kyle over email, and he says, Hi, Science Mike. How does someone with a kind of reconstructed faith like yours approach other religions? It seems in your recent discussions of your faith that you've largely returned to a version of Christianity after a couple years of atheism. But to me, it seems reasonable for someone in your position to wonder what other religions have to offer, as indeed you still speak very respectfully of your debts to atheist habits of thinking. I have largely deconstructed the evangelical Christianity I grew up with, but I still feel the pull of the divine and see a lot of value in Christianity, so I don't really want to abandon it. But I also wonder how someone in this position should think about and interact with, beyond merely being respectful, other religious traditions. Are we left with only some version of the relativist idea that all religious roads lead to God? This is an idea I thought unquestionably wrong until a few years ago. How do you interact with other faith traditions now? Well, first of all, I did explore other religions uh, both before and after my journey through atheism. When I started to lose grasp on the Christianity I knew, I looked into the broader Christian tradition. When I didn't find answers there, I went into the larger school of thought in monotheism especially the Abrahamic religions, uh, Judaism and Islam. And then I finally uh, expanded the scope into polytheism and then non-theism, deism, pantheism, panentheism, blah, 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 blah. Boy, I tried, I tried them all and 
at least for a day, all of them, and tried to study them as deeply as I could. But you're right. I'm a Christian today, unapologetically so. I have decided that I will center my life around the teachings of Jesus Christ and following him, and not just as a moral teacher. I understand God through Jesus. And I even believe that Jesus was physically resurrected from the dead. That part of the gospel account is true. And, you know, we've got other questions that I'll probably go into more detail about that in other episodes, why I believe that. But in terms of other faiths, here's the deal. Truth is truth. That's it. Are there things I can learn about life from Buddhism? Yes. Are there things I can learn about prayer from Buddhism? Yes. Are there things I can learn about God from Buddhism? Absolutely. The same is true of Islam, certainly Judaism. Hinduism. Every person of faith has something to teach me about life and about God. So how do I approach other faiths? I assume those people like me are trying to find meaning in life, that they're doing the best that they can to make a positive contribution in the world and to know God. Now, there are non-religions, right? There's secularism, humanism, atheism. Guess what? They have things to teach me about truth and about life as well. So anywhere I find truth, be that factual, empirical data like I get through science, or be that a deeper understanding of the human condition that's available through the humanities, including religious faith and expression, I'm open to it. Uh, it's not for me to figure out what other roads lead to God or not. All I know is that Jesus leads me to God. That's it. I don't have any grander aspirations to tell the whole world exactly how they should or should not pursue God. Because at this point in my life, I don't have the framework to do that. My faith is remarkably simple right now. My house of cards is still quite small after it got knocked over by atheism. So I unselfconsciously simply lead the walk of faith I know best, and that's Christianity. It sounds like that might be you too, Kyle. It sounds like Christianity is comfortable for you. So let it be comfortable. You don't have to know if that's like the exclusive way to know God or not. The you know People hear me say this all the time, but when the disciples were called, they didn't know anything about Jesus other than that he was a compelling teacher and rabbi, but they followed him anyway. We don't have to come to grand conclusions in order to follow Christ. We just have to follow Christ. And we can certainly be respectful of other people in other faiths, and even learn from them on that road. Uh, hello, Mike. I'm Carlos uh, from Venezuela. Uh, thanks a lot for what you're doing. I mean, uh, your show is helping a lot of people uh, finding Jesus, and that's awesome. And, you know, when I share the gospel, uh, people frequently ask, uh, how or why should I trust the biblical canon? Uh, how or why should I trust in the people who chose that canon? Uh, I would love to hear 
your answer and uh, also I would I would like to hear what are your thoughts uh, about uh, the Holy Spirit inspiration and how can someone uh, a person affirm that a book is inspired by the Spirit and how can you say uh, a book is not inspired by the Spirit why my thoughts and my experiences that uh, cannot be added to the Bible or to the canon and am I not inspired by the Spirit? And thanks a lot, Mike. First of all, I would like to say thank you to all of those people listening in Latin America and South America because I have to imagine that my southern southeastern United States English drawl must be really tough to follow. Um, so I appreciate you listening, and man, I really appreciate you asking one of my favorite questions. But it's my favorite question because I don't, I don't really have a definitive answer. Uh, I would almost like to do an Ask Pastor Betsy uh, answer here and ask Peter N's question for just a second and let someone else take a swing at it. Um, so I can't give you a definitive answer to your questions, but I will give you kind of my working answer, where I'm at today, if that's okay. Uh, the first thing people ask you is, how do we trust the canonization of Scripture, right? Why these books? Are there other books that were considered? So why did they pick these? Well, first of all, there were other books, and there's actually more than one Bible. The Catholic Bible is a little different than the Protestant Bible, and then we also have books uh, from that time period that at different times were included or not included in canon. There was no single moment when everyone came together and selected the books of the Bible. It was a long process. For me, it's helpful to think of the Bible as a product of the church. Now, a lot of people think of the Bible, what? As a direct product of God, that God himself dictated these words or inspired them into the hearts of men who then wrote them down. And then God caused men to assemble these books together into a single volume. And then God even made it get translated into other languages. If that's the case, God is kind of a messy editor. <laughs> um, the Bible to me is a human book. Whoa, yeah, I know. But the Bible to me is a human book. It is a byproduct of the church. The church is a product of Jesus Christ, right? Jesus started the church, and then the church made the Bible. And the Bible is the largest collection of books. It's a library that collect the experiences that people have with God. Because of that, I understand there's all sorts of human motivations. And if you ever listen to people try to explain testimony, we're not very good at it, humans. We are unreliable in our testimony. And you see that a little bit in the Bible, different stories, different accounts of the same events. That doesn't bother me a bit. And so I trust the canonization as something the church did to try to further knowledge of God on earth. And therefore, as a member of the church, the Bible is worthy of study, right? There's no bigger volume for me to understand how the people who formed and influenced the faith tradition I belong to than the Bible. So how do we know what books are inspired by God? Well, we, I guess we just trust the church. Um, now, I believe the books of the Bible, um, as they were selected for different criteria, certainly do reflect people who genuinely had experiences with God and were therefore inspired 
by God. You know, and you then said, why can't we add new books to the Bible? I guess we could. I guess the church could choose to add more books to the Bible. I think it would be difficult with 40,000 denominations to get anybody to agree on what new books should be included. But, you know, for whatever reason, uh, the Bible is currently a finished document. It's a view back into uh, God's revelation and God's appearance to uh, first the Hebrew people and then a culmination of that story in Jesus Christ. And uh, we sort of live in this uh, post-Jesus period where we continue to take those themes and adapt them to the times without creating new scripture and new canon. You know, some people would say we do that because the Bible itself commands us to, but uh, I think it's interesting to note that the you know Paul, when he spoke of the scriptures, referred to the Old Testament. <laughs> he would say the writings and the prophets and the law, talking about the Torah. He wasn't talking about his own letters. He was just writing a letter to someone. So, you know, of all the answers I've gotten on Ask Science Mike, uh, this is probably the least satisfying for people. But I want to be honest. Um, I trust the Bible as the product of a church who is genuinely trying to help people know and understand God better, specifically through Jesus Christ. And so I don't debate people on the specific mechanisms of inspiration or if these books are the right books. I just live these books. I explore the stories of people like me who want to know, follow, and serve God. And in the New Testament, people like me who are trying to follow a Jesus who they cannot sit with physically like the original disciples. And in that way, I find teaching and I also find solidarity. And at least for me, that's even more powerful than a perfect divine canonization or traditional ideas about Holy Spirit inspiration. Okay, and we've got another question from the email box. Hey, Mike, evil is everywhere, including me, but is the devil real? It's a great question. <laughs> Depends on who you ask, I guess. Uh, since you sent it to Ask Science Mike, you are asking me, I can only assume. And, uh, you know, here's where I'm going to offer an opinion pretty radically different than uh, my pastor, certainly. Well, let's look at the, what the devil is, where that comes from. The devil in Christianity is also often called Satan, occasionally called Lucifer. And uh, we are a faith that uh, was born out of another faith called Judaism. And I think it's really interesting to note that there is not now, and there was not then, a devil in Judaism. Uh, the word often translated Satan in the Old Testament was the accuser. And it was uh, it's a, a verb turned into a noun and uh, was not understood necessarily to be in a singular being. It was later that the early church linked the serpent in Genesis to the accuser in the rest of the Old Testament, who frankly isn't even mentioned that often. Probably the biggest influence biblically of our modern ideas about the devil uh, is the book of Revelation. Um, that story really fleshed out the story of Satan. and But I'd have to say that a lot of our modern ideas aren't even based on Revelation. There was this infusion of Greco-Roman mythology into this character 
uh, in the early church and then even later mythologies. Uh, most of what we think about hell, for example, comes from Dante's Inferno, <laughs> not even the mentions of Gehana and, and Sheol in the Bible. So, you know, when I look at that sort of anthropological examination of this character, he seems to be a relatively recent addition even to Christianity, uh, this personification of evil. So do I believe that the devil is a being with hooved feet and horns? No. Do I believe that the devil is a being, that Satan is someone with agency and will? No. Do I believe that the accuser in Scripture and even the devil in the New Testament point to something real? Absolutely. First of all, our universe is in a perpetual state of moving toward entropy. That means for life to exist, we have to steal energy to create order from somewhere. Where we steal it from is the sun, who by a lucky coincidence is casting out energy constantly. Plants do that. They harvest this energy and then reverse local entropy, right? Well, guess what? Plants have to fight each other for their spot in the sun. And there's an arms race to get bigger leaves and get higher off the ground to get all the sun and block the competitors from getting the sun. But then after the sun's gotten, animals compete to see who can eat the most plants. And then animals start to eat other animals. And we're in this constant struggle against scarcity. And from that tapestry arose humanity. And therefore, in our brains, there's a lot of hardware that's focused on the self. We have a natural tendency to behave in selfish ways. And we also have a tendency to behave in ways that are self-destructive. We are capable of unspeakable acts of brutality. Humans, through their own volition, murder, steal, rape, and as we get more sophisticated, commit acts of genocide, we launch wars, we exploit this planet on a degree unknown in its history, we alter the global ecology, and even when we start to do better, something in our fabric says, well, who are you to try this? It's hopeless. Give up. So, while the devil, in my perspective, may not be a being, it is absolutely the shadow of humanity. It is the part of us most distant from the ideas we as religious people hold dear. So, when I read in the Old Testament about the accuser, or in the New Testament about the devil, I don't disregard those teachings because I understand what it's like to stand in a beautiful garden and want something for myself. I understand what it's like to look at what someone else has done and be envious and angry about it. I understand what it's like to wrestle with my deepest desires and try to figure out what is really right and what is wrong. So evil is everywhere, and frankly, there are worse ways to think about it than the devil. 
Well, that puts another episode of Ask Science Mike in the books. Uh, Sorry about the noise. There's a rainstorm happening in the beautiful city of Tallahassee. And when a squall happens in this part of the world, it's going to squall for a long time. And there's going to be rain noise for a long time. So there's no way to avoid that. Sorry if that's a little bit amateurish. Uh, But, hey, guys, we need your questions. I've gotten lots and lots and lots of questions, but we want to keep more questions coming in always. So you can use hashtag AskScienceMike on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube to put questions on the program. I'll see them. You can also use AskScienceMike.com. There's a form at the bottom of the page where you can type out a question. I get all those. And that's also a great way to submit a question that you want to keep anonymous. Now, there's some really exciting announcements for the show this week. Number one, those of you who have been asking for Stitcher, we're on it now. You can get Ask Science Mike on Stitcher. If you don't know what Stitcher is, don't worry about it. But if you know, you're excited about it. Two, we have much better RSS support. So if you're using a non-iTunes, non-Stitcher platform, just use the feed feedpress.me slash AskScienceMike to subscribe to the show. It's going to work really great. And finally, guess what? You can actually record audio questions on AskScienceMike.com now. You click a button, you hit allow, and you record a question. It goes straight to me. It could not be easier. Give that a try. It's super cool. Now, uh, along with those exciting announcements, as I mentioned at the beginning of the program, AskScienceMike has grown incredibly and that's because we have open honest conversations about science and faith and that means getting this show to your eardrums costs a lot of money it's been uh, quite a hefty bang to my bank account every month paying all these bandwidth bills so i've started a patreon campaign so that the people who feel that they want to be a part of this that they want to help create an honest conversation about science and faith can do so because it takes money and frankly a lot of time to get this content to you so just go to askSciencemike.com. you can click right on a link to go straight to the campaign and learn more about it and here's a couple things i want you to know number one every single dollar helps it's a monthly commitment it's really easy to do but you can you can actually pledge one dollar a month and i would appreciate it okay uh, give it any level you're comfortable with. And not only that, you can change or cancel a pledge on Patreon at any time. So if you're having a hard month, you want to cancel it, you want to cut down to a smaller dollar amount, you can do that. Piece of cake. Now, people who participate, people who give financially to the show are going to get some perks. One, you're going to get early access to the show. You get to hear it before everybody else. At certain giving levels, you can actually help me pick the questions or even add your own question to the program. And some people have the opportunity to be an executive producer and have their name mentioned on the air. Now, as we're at right now, Ask Science Mike is listened to by over 6,000 people a day. So that's a, you know, that's a pretty big opportunity. Uh, now, if money is tight and you're like, oh, I'd like to help Mike, but I just I don't even have a dollar a month. I get it. That's cool. Ask Science Mike will always be free. And you can still help the program. Just go to iTunes and rate the show. Leave a rating and write a review. That will help us tremendously as we try to find other listeners who may be interested in the program. You could also tweet or post on Facebook about an episode you've enjoyed. That would help the program a lot. There's other ways to support this work than just financially. 
Uh, whatever you choose to do, I want you to know I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this program. It's completely because of you that it's been such a success. And as I say all the time, it is your show, and I thank you. Ask Science Mike is produced by Greg Nordine, and he does a great job. I'm so grateful for his help. And our theme song, of course, is by Jeb Bodiford. If you've got a podcast and you'd like original music composed and recorded for it, Jeb is your guy. Links to both Greg and Jeb can be found in the show notes of AskScienceMike.com as well as resources for every question we've addressed on the program. Thanks for listening, guys, and I'll see you next week.